Good. Well, it is uh, really, really good to be with you. If you're just visiting with us, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, this is just a worship service where we love to worship Jesus. We do that a number of ways, uh, but some of the primary ways we do that is by singing like we were just doing, uh, where we sing songs about Jesus, just declaring who he is and what he's done. We worship Jesus by reading through the scriptures and just teaching the Bible. Uh, we do that through, just by walking through books of the Bible. We're in the book of Philippians. Uh, we started it two weeks ago. I feel like I have to like, reteach the sermon two weeks ago so we can remember it to get caught up. But uh, that's the book that we're in. We also worship Jesus by giving generously because he gave most generously to giving us himself in the person and work of Christ. And we give in the small black box in the back and many of you guys give online too. So thanks for your generosity in that way. Um, wanted to tell you guys just one update. A lot of you guys, if you're on the email uh, kind of uh, connection, if you, if you don't get email updates from me or if you don't get emails at all from me, um, just make sure that you email that, that uh, info at churchatbergen.org in your bulletin because I send out stuff periodically that's just good for us to know. If you want to be in the loop, if you don't want to be in the loop, please don't email me. Uh, you're welcome here, but you know, if you don't want to receive emails from me, you know, no problem. But we, uh, we update each other often. I sent you an update about a week or two ago that we uh, got a, an update on, uh, the, on the kindergarten that we were able to purchase last Christmas in Bahol, Philippines. And uh, God is doing an awesome work there. So what I did was they sent us a big card with all the kids' faces and a few little letters and an update on what God's doing in that kindergarten, how they're teaching them the Bible, how they are having spiritual nourishment, emotional nourishment, uh, food, supplies, all that stuff. So um, on the back table behind, you uh, was back there, maybe it's behind Darlene. Hey, Darlene, is there like a card behind you? Cool, it's there. All right, so that, that's from, go check it out, read next to it. Yep, hold it up, Vanna White. There she is. Uh, take a look at it. Um, and just, just, just be uh, just encouraged by what God's doing through that. And uh, it's called Restoration Hope. That was the name that you guys decided to name it. I thought it was a great, appropriate name. Uh, I don't remember who exactly uh, gave that, but I don't want to boost your ego, so just remain quiet. So uh, that, is the, that is the name that, that we gave. So uh, just be encouraged by that too. Um, where's Murs? Merz, Merz, come on up here. So, so here, our, our college young adult ministry went away last weekend, and uh, they um, went to Camp of the Woods with a number of other churches and people, and uh, you can use that mic right there. That'd be a little awkward if you were talking into my lap. So, uh, so Merz, her name's Merzaline, but we like Merz. Merz is just solid. So, uh, and that's like she, what she likes to go by, but they were all up there for the weekend, and uh, God just did an awesome work in them, so I just wanted, you know, we're... We need to be constantly encouraged at the ways that God is building and maturing and refining us into more the image of his son. And uh, that happened uh, last weekend. And uh, I just wanted her to share real quick about just maybe some specific ways that God challenged her and encouraged her. So, um, Hi, everyone. I'm Merz. Hi. <laughs> um, so last weekend, we went to um, this retreat with 26 Below. And um, the speaker, Nate Bramson, he's um, a missionary from Nigeria. And he spoke about um, living a transparent life. And it was so encouraging, yet so convicting. Like, I left that place like, whoa. I thought I was saved, like, for a year. But, man, I really just got saved again. But um, it was so amazing. But um, I promise I'll be brief. So um, he basically, he preached through Psalm 51. And he said there are three ways that we can live a transparent life as Christians. Um, we can own our sin. Um, exalt our Savior and surrender our entire lives to Him. And I was really convicted when He said that oftentimes we have these masks that we wear, and we wear these masks because we don't want people to see who we really are 
or we're not content with the way that God made us. And I felt so convicted because I've always wore a mask. And it's like I never really wanted people to see that I was broken or I didn't have it all together. Um, I didn't want them to see the neglect, uh, the depression, the loneliness, or even the abuse. Um, I just wanted... I just wanted it to seem like I have it all together because it seemed like from birth, I was just like, oh, there's the brokenness, Merz, go with it. But then it's like, um, and so I was upset at God because I'm like, why did you make me go through all this, all this brokenness, all this hurt, and everyone else is like singing Kumbaya, and I'm over here like, um, I'm just a mess. So um, he really encouraged me to to really see how God can use our filthy rags for his glory. And so it was then I realized that in order for me to live a transparent life, I need to be able to confess my sins because I know that I, I dreaded confession. Like when I come to God, I'm like, okay, I have to bring all these good stuff. So I'm going to bring like the $25 I gave to this homeless guy to God and he'll be so proud of me. But it's not like that at all. God wants us to bring who we are, not who we are not. And it was just so encouraging to hear that even when we come to God with all of our filth and all of our garbage, he's so happy. I mean, when I confess, I'm so happy because I'm like, I, I just thank you that when you look at me, you don't see me, but you see your son. And so um, one more thing that Nate said, he said that um, we can be deeply encouraged and exalting Christ because we knew that God hid his face from Christ while he was on the cross so that he didn't have to hide his face from us. And so um, I would just really encourage you guys today um, to really examine yourself and ask yourself this question. Do you still get overwhelmed by the gospel? Like do when you hear Pastor Mike just even talk about Christ in his sermon, do you still have that feeling like, oh, Jesus is awesome? Like, I would just encourage you guys to really um, learn and get deeper into the gospel because that's really our foundation. Thank you. Amen. Thanks, Morris. Cool. Be encouraged. Well, I don't need to preach sermons. sermon. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Good deal. Just roll up my notes. Uh, no, that's a, that's a great, we did plan it, so, but that segue is beautiful for uh, just today. Where uh, Paul's going to address, there's no tightening button on this, sorry. Uh, where Paul's going to address the, the advancement of the gospel and that being our passion. So let's, let's ask him for help. Uh, God, we thank you that we need your Holy Spirit, that we can't gather here and just expect things to happen. We can't expect our minds just to understand this. We can't expect joy just to arise. Uh, Lord, we need you to do it. So God, would you be kind to us this morning? Would you knit us together more closely than we are as a faith family, as families, in our marriages? And God, may you come in a profound way today. Lord, refine us and transform us more to the image of your Son. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Go to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we are still in Philippians chapter 1. We went up to verse 11 two weeks ago. We're going to just pick right back up where we left off. And uh, here's just a little bit of a, a background just to get you uh, caught up. We kicked off um, our, this series in Philippians two weeks ago, and it's known as one of the prison epistles. So what that means is Paul wrote basically four letters, okay, that were while he was in prison. He wrote Ephesians, he wrote Colossians, he wrote Philemon, and he wrote Philippians. 
And uh, during all of those different, uh, those different four years in prison, two years where he was in a Caesarean prison, and the other two years he was in a Roman prison, he wrote these four epistles or letters. And we were reminded last week as to how there's, there's this epistle is basically called the epistle of joy, okay? If people want to kind of write a theme, that's normally what it's called. It talks about contentment a lot. It talks about joy a lot. It talks about being unified. It talks about loving your brothers and sisters a lot. But, but here's where Paul wants to get your heart, wants to get my heart. Okay, and here's what he wanted to get the Philippians' hearts. He wanted us to get moved beyond just those surface things. Okay, so what he wants you to see is joy, contentment, love, unification. All those things happen as a byproduct of a source or a deeper substance, which is Jesus Christ. So if you don't get anything else, know that you're not going to have joy or contentment or unity or love for one another if you're just trying to do it. Okay, you need Christ who's all things. You need the Christ who actually produces those things in you to enable you to walk in those newness of life ways. And so we said over the next 11 weeks, here's what you're going to see from Paul. He is going to adamantly go after you to pursue Jesus Christ at all costs. Okay, he's just going to keep laying that before you. And here's why. Because he knows that if you get the perfect marriage, you know, if you learn to manage all your sin, if you learn to have, you know, your family look the way you want it to look, or you look just like the Christian community wants you to look, and you don't get Jesus, you haven't won. Like, you've lost it all. That's why in chapter 3 he says, I consider everything a loss compared to knowing one person. Okay, so he's going to say, don't let the goal be your morality. Don't let the goal be your performance. Don't let the goal be you trying to have this life that looks good. Let the goal be Jesus. Okay, let the goal be Christ. And if we get that at the end of walking through this letter, we've, we've done something good. Okay, because he, he's the focal and center point of, of all things. And that's why next week we're going to see the staple verse where Paul says in verse 21, to live is Christ. To die is gain. That, if there's a theme verse for this book or this letter, it's verse 21 of chapter 1. To actually live, to fundamentally live is Christ. His life is infused with ours. Right? We're now found in him. We're now covered in him. We're now hidden in him. It's all that language of the New Testament. right? So let, let's, let's long and pray for that, that we be able to say to live is Christ. Uh, Last week we saw the birthing of the church at Philippi. The reason this is super important is because we're going to keep coming back there because you've got to dive into this letter and know he's talking to real people. I mean, how often do we read the Bible and read letters and we're like, yeah, he probably wrote to somebody, right? Yeah, or it's some distant person that used to exist or used to live. You've got to get yourself into the story, get yourself into the book. So we looked at Acts 16. If you didn't hear last week's sermon, I really encourage you to hear it because it's really foundational for everything else you're going to hear the next 11 to 12 weeks. What we saw was in Acts 16, Paul's in his second missionary journey, and he's sharing the gospel. He's with Silas and Luke. They pick up Timothy. They get to the last piece of land they have at Troas. They're looking at the Aegean Sea. They don't know where to go, and Paul gets what's called as the Macedonian call. A lot of you guys have heard this where he gets a vision that tells him to go to Macedonia, to bring the gospel to Macedonia. And so they go, okay, what's going on here? God's bringing the gospel from Asia to Europe. Okay, that's what he's doing. So they get on a boat, they go across the Aegean, they take two pit stops, end up in Philippi, okay, in Macedonia first, which is the leading, leading center of northern, northeastern Greece, and Philippi's right there. And the first thing they do is go to a riverside, okay, prayer meeting. They go to a riverside prayer meeting because Paul's looking for Jews, right? He wants to advance the gospel of these Jewish people, and he knows, if you know any Jewish history, that when they were exiled, okay, back in the Old Testament, 
They didn't have a temple. They didn't have a synagogue. So they'd find the nearest river and weep because they didn't have any place to go to worship. So he knew in northeastern Greece there was no temple, there was no synagogue, so he goes and finds them by there, probably weeping, probably praying. He explains the gospel to them, and you see this unfolding birthing of this church where the three most unlikely candidates get woven together. Right? Who do we have? A wealthy business executive named Lydia, right? who was a seller of purple goods. You also have a, a fortune teller slave girl okay, who was demon-possessed, and then they th- they're thrown in prison, and God saves the jailer. A city employee. And so you see the gospel just go beyond dividing lines of even culture and ethnicity. And, and, and this is why we need to know this is because as Paul writes this letter, he's talking to them. He's talking to Lydia. He's talking to this jailer. They all start gathering in Lydia's home. And they start building up this church And so we dove into this letter last week where he spends the first 11 verses turning his affections towards the Philippians, right? It's endearing, it's encouraging. Hey, the God who saved you, Lydia, the God who saved you, little girl, the God who saved you, jailer, hey, the God who saved you is going to keep that work going and he's going to finish it the day of Christ, right? Verse 6, it's on all of our coffee mugs and probably hanging up in our house, but you got to get deeper into that verse. He's talking to people who are receiving that, being so encouraged by that. Man, so, so God takes great joy and delight, not just in justifying you, but sanctifying you over time. Like, and we talked about, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is not trying to believe in a better version of yourself, and then he's going to get serious about you? Do you believe that God's not regretting rescuing you from your sin? Like, you're not the one missing the mark because he's the one that's enabling you to live a new life and walk in newness of life and empowering you by his Holy Spirit. And then we saw how Paul writes in a circular motion and how we, we are filled with the fruit of Jesus Christ so that our, our love abounds, show that, so that we grow in discernment, so that we grow in knowledge. And so here's what's going to happen is Paul's going to now turn from his affection and his, and his love towards these people. He's going to turn his eyes towards how he's doing and how the gospel's doing. Now, why does he do this? Because they haven't heard from him in four years. So let's, let me just give you a little bit of background to understand where this text is coming from in verse 12. Paul's writing as a prisoner in Rome. Now, Paul longed to get to Rome, okay? If you read Acts, you'll see that, okay? He, he longed to get to Rome. He knew it was a center point for vibrant gospel mission. He knew to look at artery segues and different places where cross-trade routes went. He knew those places, those major cities, were a great place to start to advance the gospel. And to be honest, that's why we love Paramus, because Paramus is a real central spot. It's a great spot with segues and crossways and byways. It's a great place to plant yourself to enable vibrant gospel mission. Hey, it's not a, not a new plan or trying to be cute or creative. We just see Paul do that. And so what happens is Paul wanted to get to Rome, but when he gets to Rome, he didn't get to Rome like he wanted, okay? He wanted to get to Rome as a missionary, which he ends up being still, we're going to see, but he ends up there as a prisoner. So if you look at Acts 21 to 28, you basically see how this happens. Okay, you basically see how Paul ended up in Rome. In Acts 21, Paul comes back from his third missionary journey, He's attacked by a mob. He's beaten because he's preaching Christ who was just crucified as a criminal, saying he's the son of God, he's savior of the world. Okay, they don't like that. So he's thrown in a Caesarean prison, not out of punishment, but more protection because they don't want Paul to be killed. The government, so they throw him in prison. He's protected there. 
And in Acts 22 and 24, while he's in prison, the Romans are afraid to let him go because they don't want him to be killed. So he goes before Governor Festus, Governor Felix. He appeals his case. They don't listen to him. They don't really agree with what he's saying. They're not really sure whether he's guilty or not. After two years there, Paul just basically suffers from cruelty and people just mock him, make fun of him. And so then they ship him out to protect him. In Acts 25, he gets on a ship headed to Rome, right? He's shipwrecked, right, for like three months. <laughs> Insane story. And uh, eventually in Acts 28, he makes it to Rome. And he spends two more years in Rome in Acts 28 as a Roman prisoner, okay? And it's during these two years that he writes to the Philippians. You get all that? It's just a quick Acts class, okay? We just took a class in Acts 21 and 28, okay? So most uh, abbreviated one you'll ever have, but you got to see that. So he's been here for years, and months are passing by. He's under Emperor Nero. He's waiting to hear whether or not he's going to be executed or released. He actually thinks he's going to be released. If you read a lot of the language in the New Testament from Paul, he's hopeful he'd be released, but he's not sure. That's why he says a lot, you know, whether I'm present or whether I die, Christ would be exalted. So as these months are passing by, Paul is chained to a Roman prison guard. Now understand, if you know Roman custom well, they actually change guards every six hours. Okay, so, so he's got like four guards throughout a day. Okay, so every six hours they change. So he's chained to the guards. So he, he eats, he sleeps, he talks, being chained to a Roman prison guard. It's been four years, and the Philippians are going, man, okay, so how's Paul doing, and how's the gospel doing? Let's send Epaphroditus out there. See, in chapter 2, they send him up to him to bring him money, to help him. They're like, man, we want word. We want to hear how our brother Paul is doing, how our pastor's doing. Okay, and here, here's what's so cool about that. The, these two very things they're asking Paul are the two things. We have a lot of supporters that, that are financially supporting this church when Kristen and I moved up here to plant it, and they still write us asking us two things. Mike, how are you, and how's the gospel? It's awesome seeing that, right, that, that Christians are still writing that way and, and, and wondering that type of thing. So here Paul's answering those questions. Look at verse 12, chapter 1 in Philippians. Here's how he's doing, and here's how the gospel is doing. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Okay. So he, when he says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me, he's talking about his imprisonment. He's like, I, I want you to know that by my being in prison, it's actually pretty cool. The gospel's advancing. Like, I know you're worried about me, I know you're concerned about me, but there's actually more opportunities for Christ's name to be known by me being in prison than not being in prison. And, and, and he's showing how it's advancing. I think a better word is progressing. The gospel's progressing. And so he's going, hey, not only Lydia and, and previous girl who was in slavery and demon-possessed, not only, you know, jailer. No, no, there are other people that are being added to the kingdom. There are other people hearing about Christ. Other people getting saved. Now, now, here's what's so crazy about Paul. He had a one-track mind. Like, he, he's not, like, making this up. Like, he actually had one singular passion. Would you, would you ever read Paul and be like, man, this guy, he's actually serious. Like, he, he actually does not care about his career. 
Like he, he actually does not care about his clothes or how he's looked or his fame or his ego. He is solely concerned with a singular passion, which is the progression and the advancement of the good news that Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus rose and sinners can be reconciled to God and given a new heart and a new mind and become a co-heir with Christ and be eternally forgiven and loved relentlessly by God who shows endless grace and patience and mercy. Like he, like he, that's, his, that's what drives his life. What a man. Anyone not like that? I guess I'm it. You know, like, like you know what I mean? Like, that's, that, that's what you see here. And so Paul is just, just getting at this idea that, man, all I care about is that the gospel is advancing. And remember last week how he talked about how we, we grow in Christ, we're sanctified, not just by doing, but primarily by seeing. How, how we see the cross of Christ, and that creates love and growth and refinement. He just wants to see that happen more and more. And so as these people are seeing those fruits in Paul's life, it's opening up an avenue for him to proclaim and articulate the gospel to them, and more people are getting saved and trusting in this Jesus. I want you to think about this just for a minute. If you're a prisoner chained to a Roman guard, what are you going to write to people if you're, like, waiting for your next meal? I'm hungry, you know? They brought me cold pizza, like hot pizza, you know, like... I want lasagna. Like, I don't know what, what you'd write, right? But, but, but here, here's, what, here's what he writes here. He doesn't write anything like that. Paul cares about only the gospel. So he writes and says, hey, guys, this is actually pretty cool. What? Hey, guys, I, I want you to know, hey, don't worry about me. I want you to know the gospel's advancing. Hey, all the guards are starting to hear about this message. The whole imperial guard, Caesar's household, all hearing about it. Now, how do we know that members of Caesar's household actually trust Christ? Go to the end of chapter 4, and you see that he says, all the saints greet you, including Caesar's household. Like this is pretty goes, okay, hold on. Not only the Roman guards, okay, not only are they hearing Christ, all the Christians out there are hearing about my boldness, hearing about my joy regardless of my circumstance. It's empowering them, it's giving them boldness, and they're sharing the gospel. It's just this ripple effect. And he's just so excited about this. Oh, oh, and guess what? I've got a new guard every six hours. So then they, they all have to deal with me. Oh, and they're chained to me, right? Pretty good deal. I mean, they can't leave. Right? I mean, how annoyed must they have gotten, right? I mean, you know when you try to share the gospel, people can always run, right? Whenever I tell someone I'm a pastor, they either run or they make fun of me. There's only like two options, right? And, and here it would be great if they were just chained to me. I'm a pastor. Yeah, just try running, bro. <laughs> try running. Not going to get anywhere, you know? Let me tell you about, let me tell you about hell. It's hot. You know, like, and they can't, they can't go anywhere. It's, it's just this, it's this amazing, amazing thing. And that's why, like, 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 look at God's sovereignty in this just for a second. We think, oh, he's chained to Roman prison guards. No, they're chained to him. Right? I mean, that God in his amazing providence would put Paul there so he gets to talk to every imperial guard. And, and, and then they start trusting in Christ. And then they start telling other guards and they start talking to Caesar's household. That's amazing. It's amazing to see God's providence in this whole situation. And so Paul is just sharing about this, this joy that he has, this courage that he has. And he's going, man, this is working out great. Why? Because Paul's joy was not based or rooted in an ounce of his circumstance. That's hard. I mean, it's easy to read it. 
But to actually consider that being a reality with some of the things going on in your life, that joy is not ruined by that. It was, it was solely in Christ is all things to me. The gospel is all things to me. So, so my joy isn't changed based upon if I'm in prison, it's okay. If I'm shipwrecked, it's okay. If I'm beaten, it's okay. It's just crazy. But possible. Not impossible. Paul's a human. He has a heart. He has a mind. He has a soul. He was a terrorist. Killing Christians. He didn't have some special resume. He didn't have a special heart. He didn't have more of the Holy Spirit. And God just decides to do something with him, and he begins to understand the depths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's progressing, it's moving, and God in his wisdom has him right where he needs to be to have a win for the kingdom. Now, can you imagine just the conversations with these guards? We just, just getting to sit there? You know, he gets to give them a few hours to respond to questions. Just talking to them. And can you imagine them seeing the Christ-like character that's bubbling up? We saw in verses 9 to 11 in Paul, his patience, his love, his sincerity for them. Listen, Paul was not, I'm, I'm sure, Paul was not in there demeaning them, calling them, you know, just jerks and idiots for believing in some other theology. You bet the character of Paul, the joy in Paul, the sincerity in Paul is winning these hearts over to Christ. That he so cared about even the people that were keeping him captive. Loved him so much that he was sharing this great gospel with all of them. I mean, imagine when the next guy jumps in. Oh, boy, man, you got your work cut out, dude. I just had to sit through a dissertation with this guy. You know, but man, can you argue with his joy? Dude, he's writing his other friends. He's not asking for material possession. He's not asking for food. He's, not, he's asking for them to just keep praying that he'd have more joy. Who is this guy? Now, some of you are going at, at this point, Mike, I'm not a pastor, right? I'm not a missionary. I've got a job. So here's the question for you. Where has God chained you like he's chained Paul? I don't know where it is. I mean, is he chained you to a car where you just do sales all day and drive around and talk to different people? Is that where he, he has you chained? You can't get out of that? Are you, are you chained to a desk where you, where you do work all day? Are you, are you chained to different employees every day that you talk with every day, see the same people every day? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know what it is for you. I mean, maybe for some of you, it's, it's your chain to a construction site. That's where you go. That's what you do. Maybe it's architecture. Maybe it's, I don't know what it is. But, but how are you using where God has already in his sovereign wisdom put you to advance and progress the gospel? Right? Like, and listen, just take baby steps. This is the, but but the, here's the thing. Let me just free you a little bit and relieve you from having to right now when you leave this sermon, you're going to be so on fire for, I want to evangelize everyone. I need to sign up as a missionary. If I don't do that and I don't go to India or Uganda, I'm a, a failing Christian, unrighteous. No. Just be faithful where he has you. <laughs> His sovereignty is already at work in your life. Right? So, so just start acting and walking in the place he's already put you. You don't have to find somewhere new. 
And, and how are you using that as an opportunity? Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. So he has you confined to that neighborhood. I don't know what that means. Asking other moms in your block to go on walks with your kids. Seeing the same moms at playgrounds. I don't know where, what it means for you. But that's where your field is. That's where you advance the gospel. That's where you push it forward. And let, and let me add this to it. Some of you are in a really hard place. You're in a difficult season in your job. And here's what I hear a lot. Oh, it's so hard to be a Christian in my job. Okay. But, but do you realize that when does the gospel shine brightest? Why do you think Paul had such an opportunity to advance this beautiful message of good news and not just good advice? Because when we're under adversity or in situations that aren't likable or what we would enjoy, all of a sudden when there is Christ-like character or there is joy or there are characteristics bubbling up that don't, don't match what should be bubbling up, people take note of that. Well, why, why is he content then? Why, why is he joyful? Why is he... So, so here's what I just want to lay before you. Maybe God has you in a difficult, hard place in your vocation or just in the season of life, maybe to actually in his kindness provide a ripe opportunity for you to advance and progress the gospel because your character will so stand out amidst your circumstance. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> that we can actually see all of our work as joy-giving because you are not in your job for you. You don't live on this earth for you. We all live and exist primarily to make much of him, to be used by him, to enjoy him, to further his message and his name. And so that gives us joy. So that's where I think we begin to understand how Paul could be joyful. I think that's where we start finding joy in unexpected places. When we start seeing that, that, that what a better opportunity to stand out as someone who has been made new in Jesus. I mean... It would probably be very difficult to be a true witness and ambassador of Christ in the perfect job, a perfect situation where you never struggle and you never had adversity, right? I mean, wouldn't you have a real chance to actually exercise some of those fruits of the Spirit or actually demonstrate that, hey, my, 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 my worth and my value is not here, it's in Him. Christ is all. So Paul's sharing about this progression of the gospel because of his imprisonment. Then he says something interesting in verse 15. He says some, okay, because he had just said some of the brothers are enjoying this. Like some people are being affected. Some of the Christians, not all of them, okay? So the other sums. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Okay, so he had just said in the previous verse, most of the brothers are positively being influenced by my imprisonment and the advancement of the gospel. Others are breeding jealousy. This is so interesting and so true. There are some, now, now, now first, I want, I want you to notice something, okay? These people are motivated not by joy and love, but by envy and rivalry. It's just another word for jealousy. The issue is not them preaching some false gospel. 
Well, like these other brothers are preaching Jesus Christ. Like Paul could sign their doctrinal statement. Like, like these aren't people that are Gnostics or have some weird Greek mythology. or No, these are people that are preaching a totally pure gospel with a totally impure heart. So what's the issue? Their motive. The issue is their motive, why they're preaching. That's the difference. So Paul's going, there are some that preach out of a sincere heart. They hear about my imprisonment. They hear about my ministry. It's encouraging them. It's breeding life. There are others that are so jealous. They're jealous of his ministry. They're jealous of the success that he's having. They're jealous of the ways that God's using him. They're jealous of his giftedness. And so they're trying to shame him. Do we see that in evangelicalism? I don't like that that church is growing. How wicked. Right? And so now it's like this, this, this uh, you know, competition of, well, I want more converts. Or I want more people in my church. Or, so now the preaching's not motivated by a sincere heart out of love for people wanting to see the kingdom grow. It's totally motivated by someone going, I want my ego and my fame and all about me to grow and be boosted up. It's not kingdom-mindedness, right? It's self-mindedness. Now you can bet, if historically God's leaders have struggled with this, that God's people are going to struggle with this. And I'm not talking about the pastors only. Let's dovetail just a second. I'm talking about us as church members. When you see another brother or sister who's maybe more gifted than you are, or God's using them in some ways you wish you were being used, does that breed rivalry and envy? Or does it just breed great joy that God's using them to advance the kingdom? And don't move on so quickly. Sit there for a little bit. How does your heart respond when you see another brother or sister having opportunities for the gospel, sharing the ways God is flourishing in their heart, ways that God's using them in ministry, raising them up to be leaders? How does your heart respond to that? The reason this is so important is because otherwise we're going to end up just like these brothers. And it's, it's a challenging, challenging thought. So these men were preaching a pure gospel with an impure heart. They wanted to use the pulpit as a platform for their self-esteem, for their ego, for their fame. And I don't think Paul's sharing this because he wants us to feel sorry for him. Right? Like, I don't think he's saying this because, oh, I want you to feel bad that people are, like, jealous of me. I think he wants us to examine our hearts when we preach Christ. And our hearts towards other brothers and sisters when we see the kingdom growing. Because do you realize God cares as much about your motive as your content? You realize you can know all the right gospel things. You can be the best apologist in the world and be motivated by a wicked heart. Because you just want to boost yourself up. You want that platform to tell everybody. You know everything to say. You know every answer to every statement that goes against the scriptures or the Bible. And it's all about you just making much of you. So in your evangelism, you don't, have, you don't have sincerity. You're motivated by something else. And it becomes like a game and a competition. And Paul's warning us in that. 
And so just to, just to say something publicly that I've said before, my hope, and I mean this in all honesty, my hope and prayer is that we would constantly and consistently celebrate the success of other local churches all the time. Praise God that they're growing. Praise God that he's adding to their numbers. Praise God that he's at work there. I'm talking about gospel-preaching churches. There are so many Bible-loving, Holy Spirit-filled, Jesus-passionately serving the kingdom pastors and faithful church members at lots of other churches that we need to pray for and encourage and say, keep going. Keep going, right? It's not about, okay, is Cap going to get bigger than them? Is Cap, you know what I mean? Like, like it's just, it just, the joy is just sucked out of it. And all of a sudden, the motivation behind everything is not love and sincerity and joy. It's all envy and rivalry, which leads to a lack of joy and an utter destruction of the soul. And it rolls into your evangelism. It rolls into other areas of your life. And so here in the middle of all that, that's, this is what I want you to hear. There is one kingdom, and it's not Church at Bergen, right? There is one way of doing things, and it's not our way of doing things. There is only one head of the big C church. There's only one head of the unstoppable, immovable church of Jesus Christ. It's him. So we might do things differently. It might be flushed out differently here. But he's the head of all that. Right? So the kingdom's not here. The kingdom is Christ's kingdom. And we follow and submit to him as our senior pastor. As he applies and lays out everything else. So everything we do, guys, from discipleship to training pastors to seeing churches planted to doing works in mission to trying to equip the saints to loving our neighbor is all done with Christ being the head of that. Always. That, that's the kingdom. That's the kingdom of God. And this is, this is why we need to remember this. Because if we don't, then we're going to start playing this game that these brothers do. We start pitting preacher versus preacher. We start pitting church versus church. And it's just a silly game that, that we love to do. And so let's ask God for grace there. Let's ask God to be encouraged by his work in New Jersey. That's why I love meeting with pastors around New Jersey. I love hearing about what God's doing. I love sitting with men that have been pastoring for 30 years and going with a notepad, hey, just, just share with me what you've learned in 30 years. Done with Pastor Minima. Done that with Pastor Fred. Cornerstone. Done with Reed down at Jacob's Well. We do that with Ryan at Emergence all the time. What do you, how are you being challenged? How do you work through conflict? How do, you, how do you love your sheep better? How do you grow as a pastor? How can we pray for you? How are you seeing God work and show evidence of his grace? Man. May we, may we love that. Paul ends with this amazing statement. He says this. He says, what then? Only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Okay, here is the bottom line for Paul. Did it ruin or steal Paul's joy because people were envious or jealous of his ministry? No. No. Did it steal Paul's joy that, 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 that he was in prison? Did it ruin Paul's joy that he wanted to get to Rome? He wanted to be there so he could be on the street corner proclaiming the gospel to a city center. Instead, he's in prison. Did that steal his joy? No. Paul says, man, no. You want to know what gets me fired up? 
You want it, whether in pretense, whether it's done by envy or rivalry, okay, whether it's that crowd or whether it's proclaimed in truth, whether it's the ones who sincerely preach the gospel, I don't care how it's being done. I'm just thankful that the gospel of Jesus Christ is advancing. What a guy. I mean, he's saying, that's what I rejoice in. God will deal with the motives of people. God will deal with their, their, you know, their heart issues or what they want. Because, man, I'm just thrilled that the truth of what Christ did, that he offers freedom from our enslavement to sin, that he offers a new heavenly father who loves us perfectly, that we are found in him. We have a new identity that's rock solid, unshakable, with a mind-blowing love for us. Okay, because of that, I just rejoice. I just get happy. I just get encouraged. He was just thankful people outside his prison cell were hearing the message that God is infinitely holy and that we've all sinned and deserve the wrath of God and that Christ took it for us and gave us his righteousness and canceled the debt that we owed and allows us to walk as a new man and a new woman with a new mind and a new heart. That's what gave him joy. That was his singular passion and singular goal. So just notice in just these few verses, Paul is motivated by one thing. The advancement of the gospel. That's it. That's it. Christ is everything to him. So what passion do you live for? If everyone were to see your bank account, what do you spend most of your money on? You or the kingdom? If we were to look at how you spend your time, you spend the majority of time just for you, which is totally good and important and fine, but do you also spend time investing in the kingdom? Looking for opportunities to advance the gospel? Now listen, I say all this as someone who needs prayer in this. <laughs> listen, it's easy for me to get up and, and, and preach to crowds and do things like that, but man, there are times where one-on-one for me, I just fold. I shrivel up. I get scared. And I gotta, in that moment, go, hold on, hold on. God, give me, no, 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 one driving passion for the advancement of the gospel. Don't, 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 don't let me creep back in fear. Man, give me courage in this moment. Man, man, make, let it be sincere. Help me to love this person and think about this person, not just throw a lot of lingo out and, oh, I want to answer that. I want to fix that. And, oh, I know why you believe in that because this is really the issue. And those are all important things to say. But, man, God, help me to be motivated by, like, deep-seated, deep-rooted love because I'm looking at the gospel that saved me, a worthless sinner that didn't deserve any grace or any mercy, that, that didn't know truth, wasn't looking for truth, couldn't see the truth, and you showed it to me. So there's nothing innate in me. Get me back to that place. And then all of a sudden you are motivated by and to be courageous because of your intimacy with him. Not because you want to leave this room and just be courageous with the gospel. Because that leads to an envious and rivalrous heart. you got to first be so pierced by what he's done for you. Let that sink in deep. And then go out and look for advancement. And be faithful in your work. What is it that gives you greatest joy? I mean, what do you talk about the most, the most often? What's on your mind all the time? What drives your thinking? These are good questions for us to ask ourselves. Because for Paul, it was one thing. Look at just this, this text in Acts that we had up on the screen when you came in. This kind of sums up his mission statement. It says, I don't account my life of any value or as precious to myself. Okay, we could stop there and have a hard time, right? 
I mean, all of us can say, man, that, that's, that's, I don't, that's not me. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's going, my primary concern is not my possessions. My, my primary concern in driving life is not my clothes. Like my, my primary concern in driving life is not my fame or my reputation at work. My primary concern and drive is testifying to this amazing God who has amazing grace that's available for all, that I just call him to repentance. I, I, I plead with God to give me a heart of love. I plead with God to allow me more opportunities to be able to testify, hey, put me in this situation. If that's what's going to advance the gospel better. Put me in this job. That's going to advance it better. Take away this. That's going to advance the gospel better. So all the decisions, you see that? Like every decision he makes isn't me or how I might live more comfortably or what I might do. It's, man, okay, you put me where you want me so that this glorious reality is moved forward. That's all he wants. What a model. What a model for us. What a challenge for us. That's possible. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me end with just two thoughts. One, is your driving passion in life the advancement of the gospel? This was a tough one for me to sit on this week. You're going, Mike, but you're a pastor. So? <laughs> I find myself at times just doing this because I, I find myself doing it. And I have to ask God, oh God, lure my heart back to why and the reason. God, increase my love. Help me to kill my sin. What's your driving passion? What dictates how you make decisions? How you spend your money? How you invest in relationships? What dictates that? I don't know what that is for you. The second thing, it's more of just a, a question. How's your courage? How's your courage in sharing with others? I told you that's a prayer that, now the reason I'm asking that is because that's what I'm praying for me. Now, now, can I lay before us as we close the remedy to both of these questions? The remedy to having a life that is driven by the advancement of the gospel and having a life that is courageous? The remedy for both of those questions is meditating on and digging deeper into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, stare at it a little longer. Like, see the true depth of your sin a little longer. See his utter holiness longer and then see that crazy exchange that happened where Christ and his cross says to a wicked, bitter, envious, jealous heart, you're mine.
and turns you into blameless, spotless, above reproach before me. Not because of a single thing you did. Because I'm so merciful and I'm so gracious and I wanted to save you. If, if you stay there, you will begin to advance the gospel. You will overflow with gratitude and such deep anguish for what has happened for you that you will want others to know that. It's not trying. Now look, should you pray for courage and boldness? Absolutely. Paul asked for that. But it's not void of a deeper understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because otherwise, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go out and be really courageous and really bold, but really arrogant. You're going to become an oxymoron, an arrogant Christian. That's what you'll become. I'm telling you. If, you, if all you do is just, oh, God, just give me more courage. I'm going to just open my mouth more. and Listen, that's great. But if that's void of you realizing in utter humility how frail you are and how deeply sinful you are and how mightily he is and how holy he is and how undeserving you are, it will only be courage, not courage with grace and sincerity. And people won't want to listen to you. And the latter is courage. It will boost your courage. The, the times where I am so fixated on that reality of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, I am so much more apt to be bold and courageous. It's an intimacy with him that cultivates and creates a courage. Let's ask God to do that in this place, in our hearts. Let's ask him to advance the progress of the gospel. Let's ask him to give us a kingdom-mindedness as a faith family. He wants to see that. Let's ask him to God give us joy in Christ who's all things regardless of where I am and help me to be aware of where you've placed me so I can be faithful. Let's ask him for it. God, we, we can't make these things happen. We're thankful that you can. God, I know all of us in this room can admit in humility that we don't linger long enough on the reality of Christ and his person and work. Would you help us stare at it a little longer? Would you help us dig deeper a little farther? God, would you through the fruit of Jesus Christ, which Paul just said in verse 11, would you enable that fruit, which is Jesus Christ, him alone, creating in, cultivating in, a courage, a joy, a love, to see the advancement of the gospel. God, help us to examine our lives and our families. God, help us to love you. Father, we're so thankful that we can look at the worst of seasons in our life with joy because your plan and divine purpose in it is not our happiness. It's the advancement of your name. It's the advancement of your kingdom. God, may you add to this church more to see you and know you and love you. May you add to churches all over this state and this nation and this world. People that want to know and see and savor you. God, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for being so gracious to us. 
Thank you for what you're doing in this place. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that enables all of this. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.